Okay, so we've been talking about church matters and um, the idea that church matters. <laughs> church really is important. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote the, his um, letters to Timothy and his letter to Titus about that very issue, about the church and how things are supposed to function and, and what he needed to remember in leading a church. Uh, so church matters, but it's also about church matters, issues that the church has to deal with. And so that's what this is about today. We're going to be talking about qualifications, and specifically qualifications for pastors. And I'll talk a little more about that in a minute. Last week, if you remember, we had uh, looked at um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul talks about, uh, one of the things he talks about is that women are not to be the pastors in the church. Uh, the, the one who stands up and speaks authoritatively from the Word of God to the whole church. And uh, we, we discussed that at length. If you, if you have questions about that, I encourage you to go back and either watch it or listen, it, listen to it. But that kind of sets us up then for chapter 3. So let's take Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy or phones or whatever we have. If you, you need a Bible, you can go grab one. Feel free. I didn't put the page numbers on here because I didn't think we'd be needing the page numbers. Usually I do. Um, all right, so 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this follows, I said, right after the idea of, of a saying, okay, that women are not supposed to be the pastors, which might raise the question, well, who is supposed to be a pastor then? And so, uh, hang on a second here. Let me... Come on, there we go. How do I get out of this? Well, I used to know. All right, well, I'm not going to get out of it for now. I'm just going to leave it there for now. All right. First Corinthians, First Corinthians, First Timothy chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Bishop, what's that about? Well, we'll talk about that. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now we're going to continue and read the passage about deacons here, although we won't have time to focus in on it today. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife ruling their children and their own houses well. 
For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So let's go back up and work our way through these. And by the way, again, if you have a, a question uh, about something that I'm being saying, you know, please ask it. That can help me to uh, stay on track with you a little better. So, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. What's the deal with a bishop? If you come from a background of a church that's uh, a denomination and there's a hierarchy, right? The bishops are the ones who are up above uh, the, the local churches and that. But um, the word bishop is, uh, comes from the uh, Greek word episkopos. And that's, that's two, two uh, it's a word with the prefix, skopos, which means to see or to look at, and epi meaning over, okay, or above. And so an overseer, that's what the word bishop means. If, if they were translating into English, trying to use a word that wouldn't be confusing, they wouldn't say bishop, they would say overseer. Okay, that's what it means. So it's talking about a leader of the church. Uh, so let's turn to Acts chapter 20 for just a moment. Acts chapter 20. I want to show you something about this position of overseer. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is traveling and he makes a decision not to travel inland to Ephesus, but he still feels like he needs to talk to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And so he calls them to come to the coastline and have a meeting. And so we see in verse number 17, it says, From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So there's a term, elders, that he's using to refer to the leaders of the church. Okay, so let's go on down to verse 28 and see how he talks to them, what he says to them. In verse number 28, he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. So let's just stop right there. The flock, who... Who, who takes care of a flock? A shepherd, right? Okay. And the word pastor, which we use often to refer to the leaders of the church, as that word means shepherd. Okay. And so the people of God are the flock of God, the sheep. God's, you know, and, and so pastors are shepherds. They're underneath Christ, who is the, the head shepherd, the chief shepherd, and then uh, underneath. So... The same people here, well, let me read a little farther. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Okay? There's that word as, again as well. Uh, to shepherd the church, that's the, the, the reference again to a pastor's position again. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So we have these, in this passage of Scripture, and we'll see it later, I think, in, with uh, something that Peter says. But in this passage of Scripture, we have... Referring to the leaders of the church. These are the leaders from the church in Ephesus. They come down and they are called elders. They are referred to as overseers and they are referred to as being pastors, pastoring the sheep, shepherding the sheep. So when we, we typically in our, in fact, in, in our culture, if we're thinking about the leaders of the church like this, what term do we typically use? Pastors, pastors right. Sometimes ministers in, in some contexts might say that. But pastors, that's right. Now, it's interesting in the scripture uh, that the word elder is the most used word referring to the leaders of the church like that. Overseer is the second most used word, and pastor is the 
<laughs> third most used word. And, uh, but yet we use that. But I think it's because of the, the descriptive aspect of the pastor shepherding the sheep and his interaction with the people in that respect. And probably why we do that. Um, so what's the point of these? Well, the term elder, what, if you hear the word elder outside of church context, what do you think? Old people, that's right, you know, like me. I qualify now, okay? <laughs> and our elders, we might talk about that. But elder in the church as a leader is a, a descriptive term of someone who is mature, someone who is a godly, spiritually mature, probably with life experience, uh, providing leadership for the church. Is talking about a position. Uh, there are elderly people, <laughs> You can have someone who has lots of experience who might not be considered an elder. So it is an office. And then I've already said the bishop, the overseer, overseer meaning the idea of looking out for the church, uh, providing direction for the church, uh, dealing with issues uh, that come up with the church. And then pastor, again, emphasizing the shepherd, shepherding role. Shepherds lead the flock. Shepherds make sure the flock has food, feeds the flock. Shepherds protect the flock. Okay, and so we have all these different roles that the, the leaders of the church are supposed to feel, uh, um, fill. So elder, overseer, pastor, in my notes I've started writing this as EOPs because <laughs> they are the same, same people, same person. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me there? Well, what's an EOP? Elder, overseer, pastor. <laughs> all right. So when, typically, like I said, in our culture, we refer to pastors, sometimes elders, but they are all the same people in the Scripture. Now, having this position does not imply employment. Okay? To be an elder, an overseer, or pastor in the church does not necessarily mean you're employed by the church. It means you have been appointed in the church to that role, uh, but it doesn't imply employment. Yet at the same time, we do look to possibly employ some of these people. Let's look in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. We'll start there. It says this. It says, Let the elders, the elders, the overseers, the pastors, let the elders who rule well, the ruling being the idea of the oversight, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so he's saying that um, the elders are worthy to be paid. But then he makes that statement in verse 17, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Uh, the word of God and doctrine being the idea of teaching of that word. So, there seems to be a case in Scripture for employing the people who you want to make sure that they have the time they need to spend in the Word. Uh, those who are doing the bulk of the preaching and the teaching. You'd like to employ them so they can do that. All right. Now, right now in our church, Dave, Dave Langren and I are pastors. We are elders. We are overseers of the church. Organizationally, I'm the senior pastor, which I always kid people until that means I'm the older pastor. <laughs> but I'm the senior pastor. Dave is the executive pastor. He handles the administrative affairs of the church with lots of other ministries as well. Uh, but that's what he does. So, all right, well, so the, what Paul is, is doing here in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, let's go back there. He's talking about... 
uh, the qualifications. So let's, uh, we talked about that, let's talk about the qualifications now. The qualifications, there are three in this section. There are three, um, there's lots more than that. There's three major areas of qualifications. The first one is a desire to shoulder the responsibility of that position. Yes, you can't see that up there? Oh, well, yeah, okay, I can do that. Hang on a second, since nobody else has their camera on anyway. All right, so the qualifications, the desire to shoulder the responsibility that goes along with this position. And before we're down here, you're going to see it is a big responsibility. And then character that's needed to guide the church in leadership. And then the ability to teach the Word. Those are the three things, the three major areas that is a requirement for people who are going to fill this position. So let's, let's talk our way through these things. So right there in verse number one, he says, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. If a man desires. And so that is the very first thing that's listed is that someone has to have a desire to do it. And I think we're talking about here a God-given desire. Uh, sometimes people talk about a calling. They have a calling for this position. Um, and that's an interesting thing because calling can mean so many different things to different people. I, I remember having friends that I uh, went to church with many, many years ago before I headed into the ministry, as well as people when I went away to college, talk very specifically about their calling. They, they were in a service, right, and somebody preached a message, or they were in their time with the Lord, and it just, they said they just had an overwhelming sense that God was calling them to go into the ministry with their lives, okay? And so that is one way this desire is shown out. Sometimes people have a real sense of a calling. And I'll, I'll elaborate on that in just a minute. But the question would be then, well, can a man volunteer without a calling? And I understand probably why you would say that, Mary. But I think that, yes, if he still has a God-given desire, right? God has placed a desire in, in the man's heart to serve in this, this role. Uh, he, and he might not talk about it as a calling, right? But I just, I, I, I really feel burdened. I want to do this. And so sometimes it's terminology, calling or a God-given desire or whatever. And I think the, the, the idea is probably this, that the difference between, and I, I don't want to be too technical with this, but the difference between someone having a sense of a God-given desire, the difference between that and a calling, might be related to how they're viewing their whole life, okay? Uh, if someone has a sense of a calling, God has called me to do this in my life. See, for them, it's a lifelong. This is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Uh, and they're going to do it whether they're employed or not, right? I mean, because this is who God has called me to be. And um, where somebody who might have a desire, to, a God-given desire to do this and to serve in this role may not have that sense of, oh, wow, this is the whole rest of my life. Okay, but it's still God has made it very clear to them that he wants them to serve in that capacity, at least for now. So calling us for life, desire for here and now. Um, and again, calling doesn't require employment, uh, although once again, someone who is called will probably be able to, you know, work to their fullest potential if they are able to be employed to do that, to fulfill that calling in their lives. Uh, so I, to my own story, uh, about this is that, like I said, I, I you know, heard people talking about a calling and it might be my personality, uh, my way God made me up. I just never, I didn't have a clear sense of that calling. 
but I definitely had a desire. I, I wanted to do this. I was drawn into it and I was committed to it. And what happened to me over the years is that as I lived out this desire, I started to see that really I did have a calling, that this was God's calling on my life. And so it, it came clear to me in that way. Uh, but uh, this idea of calling or this strong desire, God-given desire, is, is only one part of the qualifications. If we have a man who says, I, I really want to be a pastor or an elder or, you know, uh, in the church, I want to I do that, that's awesome. But and even if he says, I'm called, God has called me to do this. Well, that's, that's awesome too, but that's only first step. Because <laughs> the next question is, well, are you qualified? Do you meet the qualifications? Well, it doesn't matter, I'm called. And no, <laughs> you're called, and if you, we, you aren't qualified, then you need to go to work to get qualified so you can fulfill your calling. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, so calling is only one part of the qualification. So the second part is this idea of character needed to guide in leadership. And um, so we read these, these qualifications here in verse 2 down through verse 7. Let me say this, that there's a tendency, I think, at least outside of churches like ours and, and other um, denominations, churches, to think that the pastor, the ministers, the, whoever these people are, that they are above the people, right? They are above the people in qualifications too, right? They are more spiritual than everybody. Maybe they're more knowledgeable than everybody. That's not what Paul is saying here at all. In fact, this description is the description of the kind of character that a godly man has. The kind of really with the exceptions of the things that are gender-specific, uh, the kind of character a godly woman has. And so the question is this. You, you have a desire or a calling to, to uh, you know, fulfill this role in the church. Um, so what we want to do is then look and say, well, are you one of these? Are you a godly person? Are you mature? Do you have these character qualities in your life that every godly Christian should have? Okay? In other words, the pastors aren't necessarily the most spiritual people. We want them to be, right, very spiritual, and we want them to grow in that, but every Christian is supposed to be that spiritual. I hope that's making sense to you. So this list of character qualities is required in a pastor, but it's something that everybody should aspire to. Okay? All right, so let's take a look at these. Uh, these character qualities. First thing it says, a bishop then or an overseer must be blameless. And that sounds like perfect. You've got to be perfect. Well, then there ain't none of us <laughs> going to be able to fulfill that position. It doesn't mean that. I think this idea of blameless is not perfection, but it is consistent. It is solid. It is good and godly character. You know, you can look at someone and, and see this in them. Are they perfect? No. But man, they are consistently a godly person. They are consistently living by biblical wisdom. Um, in other words, they are not already set up for failure because of character flaws. Because sometimes people have character flaws that need to be addressed. And if you don't address them and you put them in this position, they are set up to fail. Okay? So blameless means we aren't seeing that. We aren't seeing anything here in this person's life that's gonna, that they are set up for failure. Okay. 
All right, so blameless. And then the, these qualifications, uh, they're all intermingled, but there's really two directions. One are personal character, and the other is interpersonal character. And it's all personal character, I understand. But it's personal in the sense of some of these character qualities show up in the person's own life, and then the other character qualities show up in their relationships with other people. So let's, let's, uh, let me just read through these. And so personal character, uh, and I'm not going to go deep in, uh, in depth with all these, just I think we can get the general sense off the, the top of them. But uh, personal character needs to be temperate. That means he needs to have some self-control, okay? It needs to not be out of control, not be real impulsive, but temperate. Uh, and then sober-minded. This is the idea of thinking seriously about things. Doesn't mean he can't have fun, doesn't mean he can't have a sense of humor, but he needs to think seriously about the things that are serious. Uh, needs to be sober-minded about those things. Good behavior. I think we get the idea, I mean, this isn't the person you'd want to, when you're around, say, oh man, they shouldn't do that. <laughs> we don't want this person to be like that, so they need to have good behavior. Not given to wine. This means they are not addicted to substances. Okay? Uh, we could, alcohol, drugs, whatever. Not, they're not an addicted person. Not greedy for money. And this is sort of not being addicted to money, <laughs> the idea. Okay? In other words, uh, they can have money, there, but they ought not be marked by a, a strong love for money and being greedy that they want that. Not covetous. This is not somebody who always feels like they have to have something else, right? Something that, that other people have. Uh, uh, and by the way, covetousness, if you remember, in the uh, Bible is referred to as idolatry. Because when we are covetous, what we're doing is we're letting something else be more important to us than God is. Okay? So we don't want that. Uh, not a, and then not a novice, it says. This means not a new convert. And I think it means not someone who's inexperienced. Okay, not someone maybe who is naive, uh, but someone who has a maturity uh, about them. So that's personal character. Then there's interpersonal character. This is in the relationships. The husband of one wife, and uh, very literally this means a one-woman man. Uh, this, it ought to be clear. Uh, first of all, I don't think this is a requirement that a pastor has to be married. I don't think that's the point. But if he is married, it ought to be evidently clear that he is faithful to his wife. There's no doubt of that. He's not a flirt, right? He's not, he is, there's no question here. He is committed to his wife, okay? Husband one, hospitable. Uh, this means the willingness to be open, to, to open up your life to people, to, uh, act, to invite people into your home, to share life with others. Not violent, okay? That that's really means don't be hitting people, <laughs> literally. That's a good thing. You, you don't want your pastor to be hitting people. Uh, but so not violent, so not, not quickly angry then, uh, but gentle, able to interact with people in a way that's caring, kind, not quarrelsome. Have you ever known anybody who's just gonna, always going to argue with you? Whatever you say, they've got a little different opinion and they're going to, you know, right? So we don't want that kind of person, okay? Not someone who's quarrelsome. Someone who rules his own house well. And, and again, whether someone's married or not, the idea is whatever is under their control in their life, they ought to do a good job of taking care of that, uh, overseeing it, making sure that it's, it's running the way that God wants it to run. Uh, and then having a good testimony with outsiders. You know, if everybody in the church thinks a man is, wow, he's such a godly man, a great man, you know, he, has, he would make a great leader. And then you discover that 
the people that he does business with, his neighbors, and uh, people in the community all think have a really bad opinion of him. Something's not right, okay? That's not going to work. Okay, so um, that is the interpersonal character. So it's a pretty high level of character, but can you see how this is the kind of character we all ought to have? Okay. All right, and so that's the question. So you have a desire to be a pastor or an elder, overseer, that's great. Now let's look at your life. How are you doing with these qualifications? Are you blameless in these things? Are you consistent in these character qualities? That's important to know. And there is one other quality that's listed, and it is the, you know, we typically think, you know, someone wants to be a pastor, you know, send them off to school, let them learn how to do it. Uh, learn the skills. Well, the, the biblical qualifications... Uh, really only gives one skill thing. And that's where it says there in the very last uh, part of verse 2, able to teach. Uh, in other words, um, as, as we talked about this uh, in our, our men's class in the fall, we described this as being a man of the Word. So even if somebody isn't wanting to be a pastor... Man of the Word, woman. We ought to be men and women of the Word. We ought to know the Word, right? We ought to understand the Word, grow in understanding, live it, and be able to share it with other people, whether we're in a conversation with somebody, right? So we want to grow in that. But certainly if someone is going to be a leader of the church, they have to have a, a, some sort of a, a skill or a gifting in this area. And I say or, because I don't think both is required. So they have to be able to teach the Word to others. They have to be able to do that to hold this position. This does not mean that the person has to be a gifted orator. It isn't about that. It's about, uh, it doesn't mean they're a great teacher. It does mean that this person is able to, to take the word, right? Able to take the word and explain it to other people and help them see how it applies in their lives. They need to be able to do that because this is where all of our authority and wisdom and direction comes from. Okay? Now, so let's talk about uh, spiritual gifts. What spiritual gift do you think you have to have to be a pastor? Hmm. Well, let's just look at a list of gifts here. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, uh, and I call these motivational spiritual gifts because uh, there's different lists in the Scripture. But I think this list, list, this list here in Romans... Uh, pretty much encompasses everybody at some level. And it's the idea, it, it's, these motivational spiritual gifts are sort of a perspective on life. It's how you approach life, okay, and spiritual issues. So Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 6, Paul says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. And then he starts talking about these gifts. He says, uh, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And I think that these, this list of spiritual gifts, like I said, pretty much encompasses everybody in, some, in one way or another. So uh, let's, let's talk about these. This idea of prophecy, uh, and I think is really, it's, it's sort of a gift of preaching, it's a gift of of a perspective on life that, wow, this is what God says about this. Um, a person who has this gift looks at life that way. Well, this is what God says. We need to do this. Very, you know, 
uh, strong view of what does God say and that's what we have to do. So it's a preaching kind of a gift. The next gift is ministry or serving. Some people, that's just, they, they come along and help. How can I help? Always wanting to help in some way and serve others. That is a, a spiritual gift. And then the gift of teaching. That's the person who has the ability to look at the Word and analyze the Word and understand what the points are and understand how it applies and, and has a way of explaining it to people where they get it. Okay, so that is a spiritual gift. Um, then there's the gift of exhortation or encouragement. This is the person who's always looking to encourage people and lift them up and come alongside them and strengthen them. Uh, then there's the gift of giving. This is someone who just, you know, how can I give? They give of themselves. They give of their money. They give of their resources. Uh, they are just givers. That's how they, they tend to uh, think about helping people. And then the gift of leading, uh, which I think is probably the gift of administration, the gift of organization, uh, organizational skills, and then the gift of mercy. And that's the person who just feels for everybody, right? Just always feels and comes alongside and feels for people. And so a pastor, elder, overseer can have any of those gifts. And it, but it will affect how they approach their ministry, won't it? Okay, which is why God has given us the body of Christ so we don't have just one gift. Um, so I'll just give you an example. In life, if these gifts... If, so, if an issue comes up, say there's a, somebody has a big problem in their life and so the church gathers around this person to help them. The person who has this gift of prophecy or preaching will say, well, you know, what God says is they need to do this, blah, 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 right? That's how they view the solution to the problem. What's the solution to the problem? Well, here's what God says, go do it, okay? Uh, the person who has the ministry or serving gift is the one who comes alongside and says, well, what can we do to help here? You know, can we arrange to get some meals for you or come clean the house, they're very practical in their approach to that. The person who's teaching is going to say, well, let's see, what does God say about this? And we're going to find five principles that you need to apply in this situation. Okay, that's the, and that's, that's my primary approach to things. Uh, exhortation, encouragement, this person is going to come alongside, you know, be there, wants to call them, wants to send them a note, encourage them. Uh, the person who has the, the gift of giving is says, well, can we, let's raise some money for them. Right? And let's give some to meet this need. And then uh, the person who has the gift of leading your administration said, well, okay, you guys want to you do meals? Well, let's organize this. Let's plan this. Who's going to do what? When they're going to do it? Let's get it on a calendar. That's Pastor Dave, by the way, in case you're wondering. Okay. And he's lots of other things too, but he's definitely that. And then the idea of mercy. This person is going to go sit with you and cry with you. Pray with you. Be happy with you when things go well. Uh, but so see, very different responses, okay? Uh, but my point in saying this is, is that different pastors, different elders, overseers, are going to have different approaches to ministry. They are who they are. They're who the person God made them to be. And so they are going to approach ministry in that way. And then the rest of the body of Christ has to come with their gifts. And together we serve. So we've got to be careful not to expect every pastor I, mean, I, I probably won't be your, the only pastor you guys have in life. You'll end up with others at some point. <laughs> okay? Um, different pastors will have different giftings, and so they will approach ministry in different ways. God doesn't say anything about that. He says they need to have a God-given desire, a calling. He says they need to have these quality, character qualities, and they need to be able to teach. Okay? So that's... Uh, pastors can be very different, but all this needs... These things need to be the same. So... 
let's talk for just a little bit here about uh, the role that um, pastors, elders, overseers fill in the church. And certainly it's the, the overall it's just the idea of providing wise and godly leadership for the church. So um, typically pastors determine how the day-to-day -day routine decisions are to be made. And most likely, especially if you have paid pastoral staff, they're going to be making the day-in, day-out decisions and doing the things that need to be done. Um, then they work together to make any decisions they believe have the potential to affect the church significantly. I mean, by the way, I would just say this, that most decisions in the church are not made by pastors and shouldn't be. Most decisions are made by the people who are serving and doing it. But when there are decisions that are bigger decisions that are going to affect the church, your pastors are going to be involved with those decisions, like canceling a service, right? Making that decision. How are we going to be viewed in the community? How do we, what, how we be the most responsible? What do we do? So we make those kinds of decisions. And then certainly the pastors include the congregation in making any decisions that they believe have the potential to affect the church in extremely significant ways. They, they bring the church into these things. Um, pastors typically will facilitate discussions, maybe make recommendations, uh, and schedule meetings on decisions that are reserved to the congregation by the bylaws. In other words, if we wanted to um, buy property or sell property that we have, our bylaws say that that's a congregational decision. And so the pastors would, if that issue came up, would bring that decision to the congregation. Might make a recommendation, might not, depending. We did this with the solar energy thing, if you guys remember back at one point in time. Uh, pastors facilitate the discussion, again, sometimes make recommendations, meetings on decisions that do not require congregational votes, but the pastors might determine, you know what, we want the church to vote on this. You know, the, the, the bylaws don't require, but we really want the church to make this decision. Okay, and that's actually, that's what we did on the solar, solar energy thing. And then finally, facilitating discussion with the congregation about significant changes to policies or practices that don't require congregational votes, but that the pastors believe the congregation should be included. And in. we need to talk. You need to be informed. We need to hear from you. We need to, you know, talk about this together before we make the decision. It might be the pastors feel like we need to, pastors need to make this decision, but we need you involved with us as we make this decision. Let's look at, it, at an example here. Let's go to Acts chapter 15. And hang in there just a little bit longer, everybody. Actually, you know what? I'm just going to tell you this because I really want to get to the last thing, okay? And I, I won't if I don't do this. Just in Acts 15, they were coming together to make a major decision related to doctrine and how it applied and how things were going to be done going forward. And what we see here is that the apostles and elders got together to talk about this, and the church was also there with them, okay? We would probably consider the apostles today to be the Word because they wrote Scripture, okay? So we had the Word of God, and we had the elders, the leader of the church, and then we had the people in the church. And they make this decision together. It seems like James actually ended up making the final decision. Uh, but the whole church was in it together, and when they write the letter, they write it from the, the apostles and the elders and the whole church. Okay, So we see them working together to make big decisions. So here's what I want to focus in on as we... we um, Come in. How do you relate to your pastors? Um, what role should pastors have in your life? Uh, 
How should you look at your pastors? How should you relate to them? How, how much, here's a good one, how much do you need to listen to your pastors? How much do you need to, how seriously do you need to pay attention to what your pastors are saying to you? So let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse number seven, let's look at that first. It says, remember those who rule over you. And again, remember this idea of rule. It's, it's not this overbearing kind of a rule uh, at all, uh, but it's, it's that's how it's referred to the overseers, as they lead, okay, as they lead and make decisions. So remember those who have the oversight over you, your pastors, your elders, your overseers, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct, okay? So how do you relate to your pastors? Well, first thing you do is you follow their example. You should look in their lives and say how your pastors are Christians, hopefully, right? <laughs> Silly thing to say. Uh, how, does, how do your pastors live out their faith? How, how, you know, how they do that? How do you see that in their lives? How do you see that in their relationships? How do you see that in their marriages, in their parenting? How do you see that in how they do ministry? How do you see that in how they interact with the community? How, whatever, right? Just look to them as examples. And this idea of being examples is, is not the idea that you have to do everything they do. That's not the point. But I think one is to be observant but not judgmental, right? Don't be quick to be judgmental. Instead, observe and think, okay, how, does this, how are they living out what they believe? And then learn from the things that they do well. And, and, and by the way, when you start looking at someone's example, since nobody's perfect, learn also from the things they don't do so well. Okay? Consider even how then, how do they handle the things they don't do so well? If, if your pastor makes a mistake, how does he handle that? Right? Uh, if, a, if a pastor finds himself dealing with a problem, how does he handle that? L learn from those kinds of attitudes, beliefs, actions. And again, so don't, you aren't trying to be like them, but to learn and apply the faith that leads them to those good examples. Okay? All right, then in verse 17, we get into heavy rules. This is, this is once again, this is kind of countercultural, like when we talked about uh, women in ministry last week. He says, obey those who have the rule over you. Again, referring to these overseers of your church. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable to you. So let's, let's work our way through this. But this, the second way you relate your past is you follow their leadership. You follow their leadership. And, and uh, by the way, again, you know, as a pastor, sometimes it feels kind of awkward to talk to, about these things to you. Um, but like I talked last week, I've decided not to be awkward about it. God says it. So I'm going to share it with you. Okay, be faithful in that. So let's, let's talk about this. What in the world does it mean to obey? This sounds kind of like instructions that a cult leader would give, right? Obey me, you have to do what I say. Well, that's not what God is talking about here. The word to translate obey here does mean obey. It means to yield to or to comply with, to go along with, okay? But it's important to understand something about this word. Uh, in other words, in the Greek grammar, when it's in this form, it does communicate this idea of being going along with, complying with. Uh, but here's where the word comes from. It means confident in, 
persuaded by, having faith in. And so the idea is, is to, hey, I'm going to go with this. I'm, I'm going to you know, listen to what the pastor says, and then I am going to go with it. By the way, are there any limits then on this obeying? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, right? That is the limitation. If the pastor ever tells you to do anything that God says differently, don't do what the pastor says. If, if you, as you're yielding to the Holy Spirit and your conscience and you don't have freedom, don't do what the pastor says. Hopefully that doesn't happen, all right? But the authority is limited to what God says. And it's sad to say we know that there are men who hold the role of pastor who sometimes abuse that role, and hopefully not here. So we don't want to follow those people. All right, now, what I want you to see here from this verse 17 as well, that you are not the only ones who will give account for the condition of your soul. Let's look, look at it again. What's it say? The last, Obey those who rule over you, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. So pastors are going to have some accountability for your condition. So as I wrote here, God will hold your pastors accountable for how they led you and cared for your soul. And part of that will include how well you did. In other words, if you struggle because I have not led you well, I have accountability for that. Now, obviously, as well as if you do well and I had a part in that, I also get positive accountability for that. Uh, and so this is important to understand for your spiritual well-being. Hang on, let me see here. Yeah, all right. So let's look at the rest of the verse here. He says, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. And so the idea is this. If, if you cooperate with me as your pastor, right? If you cooperate with Pastor Dave as your pastor. In other words, you take to heart the things that I preach and teach. You take seriously the warnings and encouragements I give. And you choose to act and apply in your life those things. It encourages me. That what I do makes a difference. Don't we all want to make a difference? So when I do that and you respond that way, it encourages me. It encourages me to continue praying. It encourages me to keep studying, to keep connecting, to keep preaching, to keep teaching. Okay? Now, this, this idea of accountability and you doing it also reminds me how careful I need to be to follow the Lord. Because if you're going to do what I say, whoa, I better say the right thing, huh? Okay, so that that weighs heavily on me. Now, on the opposite side of this, he says, if you don't cooperate with your pastors in this, and as if you don't take to the heart the things they preach and teach, if you don't take seriously the warnings and encouragements they give, and you don't choose to act on what they're saying, it tends to discourage your pastors. What's the point, right? You still, I mean, you've all had that experience in your own life as well. You still feel, what's the point? Uh, makes me wonder, you know, why do I keep praying, studying, connecting, preaching, teaching? Uh, it, it's when I, if, if that discouragement comes, when I have decisions about what I invest my time and emotional energy in, it makes other options more appealing. Not sinful options, but other things I could spend my time in more appealing, right? When it doesn't make any difference what I say or do, okay? So it is to your advantage if your pastors are encouraged, strengthened, build up, rested, well provided for, invested in all that, it's to your advantage. 
Uh, because we are spiritual health care workers in a sense, aren't we? We focus on spiritual wellness, we treat spiritual illness, and we help rehabilitate spiritual brokenness. So this idea of following leadership is what I think what the author here is telling us is a two-way street. First one is the leadership affects followership, right? How someone leads affects how people follow, doesn't it? It affects people's willingness to follow. It affects their, how they feel about following. Okay, so how you lead. And this is why it's so important that we try to make sure that people we put in leadership roles you know, have a, a God-given desire and the character and abilities. All right? Very important. But this, from this verse, we see this, that followership affects leadership. Right? How people follow affects the leader. And that's what the author here is telling us, that we need to take that seriously. So we'll end here today. And the challenge, here's the challenge today, is that you commit yourself to grow in godly character, the kind of, that would qualify you to be a leader, like we talked about, right? Whether you're going to be a pastor or not, to be qualified to, with this godly character and maturity. And by the way, that includes women, like I said. And then consider whether or not God is calling you or placing a desire in your heart to become a leader in the church. Be open to that. Okay? And certainly for men, that could mean the role of elder or pastor. We're actually talking about that and we'll continue to talk about that. But once again, I think even women can step up and have leadership roles in the church, just not that one position that we've talked about. So, but be open. You know, God, do you want me to do something? Do you want me to step up and take a, a, a role here of leadership? And then finally, let your pastors have the role in life that God intends for them to have. Help yourself out by being open to your pastors, giving them the benefit of the doubt, being willing to follow their leadership until the word of the spirit and your conscience won't let you. And hopefully, like I said, that doesn't become an issue. All right, so follow. Let's, if we all come together and fulfill the roles that God has given us, we'll be in good shape. So. All right, so that is the end of that. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Yes, speak nice and loudly if you can. I think this also applies to a family. The husband is the pastor of a family. Yes, I like so. If you couldn't hear that, Mandy uh, just says that she thinks these all would apply to a family too, that a husband uh, and father needs to be the pastor of the family. And I agree. In fact, one of the qualifications is that he has to rule his own and lead his own household well. The family is indeed a training ground for church leaders. Pastor your own family well, and then you can be a pastor of the larger family. Right? So thank you for that observation. Good observation. All right. Well, we are going to stop then. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, and we will keep you informed about what's going on. Uh, I'm guessing, well, I just want to stay. We'll keep you informed, okay? Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that we've been able to gather like this today. I pray that you take your word about the qualifications for those you want to lead the church, that uh, you would help us to understand it and uh, apply it, that we would uh, all aspire to be godly and mature with, with excellent Christian character. And then, Lord, I pray as well that we would be open to uh, the fact that you might want us to do more, that you might want us to step up and take leadership roles. And then I do pray, Father, that you'd give us an awesome relationship between our pastors and our people. Uh, the first, we're all in it together. And then second, we have different roles to play and that we would support each other in those roles. And as we do that, as we align ourselves with your word, that you would be able to do great things through us. 
And uh, so help us this week to navigate what lies in front of us. We want to do it in a way that honors and glorifies you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.